Well, that was wonderful, and so wonderful to see our church building looking so beautiful, but um, even more wonderful to be in here with all of you and to sing together and just all be together. It's wonderful. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to read this morning from um, Genesis chapter 13, and I will be reading verses, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 18. So find Genesis 13 in your Bibles, and I will begin to read. So Abraham went up from, no, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Hmm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Alice. Well, you know, with a new building, it's, you know, it's all nice and pristine, and, you know, somebody's got a break in the new carpet, right? 
So this morning, just so you know, so all of you don't feel bad, I on purpose spilled my water bottle across the whole stage today over there. I just want to be first as your pastor and get that out of the way for you so you don't feel bad if you spill today too. Actually, it wasn't on purpose, but uh, I say that too, though, just to, know, to say that, you know, we've, we've remodeled the building and made it look nice, but it's for us to use. It's for us to be in. It's not for us to pristinely preserve. We want to take care of it now, of course, but it's for us to be in and to use, and so um, we're glad you're here. We're glad little kids are going to be traping through the, the, the rooms on the new carpet. That's what we want. We want to be here as our place to worship and use our building. Well, we get back to Abram, as he'll soon be called Abraham. But we get back to Abram, and we start with a question this morning. If you think about our life of faith, aren't we a mixture, a mixture of faith? And at times, faith failures even, if we're honest. The life of discipleship, if you think about it, is a, is a life of ones of success and one of failures. Acts of great faith mixed in with moments of doubt and retreat and, and false starts, as we talked about last week with Abram. On the one hand, we have the spirit and power of God to live in trusting, obedient faithfulness, and yet we still remain sinful with a sinful nature. The Puritans called it the mortification of sin. It's kind of a weighty term, isn't it? But it really means to, to, to battle your sin, to put to death the sin that's in us as we live kind of as a paradox and a mixture. And this is really Abram's life so far as we look at Abram. We've been using the metaphor with Abram's life as a sprint race, if you saw our sermon last week. He began with a great start out of the sprint blocks where he left the familiar. Do you remember for the unfamiliar as God asked him to? Genesis 12 says, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. What a bold move. Think about that on Abram's part. To go to the land of Canaan, he had no idea where it was. He uproots his family from Ur and he follows God. And God says, I'll show you where you're going to go. As we talked about two weeks back, one of our biggest points that we're going to keep talking about this one is that true faith believes God at his word and responds in active obedience. This was faith not just a mental ascent for Abram to the truth of God's Word, but it was trusting so deep in his bones that he moved on it, he lived on it, he acted on God's promises. Oh, but Abram, he had a false start too, didn't he? As he was asked to leave the promised land once he got there to go to Egypt due to famine, he had a falter in faith. He didn't lose his faith, But he retreated in faith as he schemed and planned and failed and faltered, and God ended up having to deliver him. It was a fiasco, and he almost lost his wife to Pharaoh's harem in the fiasco. But the story doesn't end there. So how do you too, as we are paradoxes as well in a mixture of faith victories and false starts, how do you recover from failures in faith? How do you recover when you know know you've blown it? Moments where you should trust God at His Word, but instead scheme as Abram did, maybe, or choose disobedience and try and deliver yourself from some crisis by your own doings. So you know these stories we're getting to with Abram. They're ancient. Their culture is foreign. But we're really not so different from them. And they really are not so different from us. 
So as we look to answer that question this morning, how we recover, this morning we're going to see that Abram learned his lesson from his fiasco in Egypt as he, he renews his faith in God by displaying again a bold trust in God's promises. In a tense moment with Lot, his nephew, he takes the bold path of open-handed generosity and grace. In fact, it's so bold that Abram gives up today in this story the very thing he's been promised, the land. And he entrusts himself to God rather than his own scheming. We're going to look at three scenes in this story, so I hope you've got your outline ready or you printed it out or you've got it on your uh, maybe uh, iPad or tablet at home. As we're going to look at these three scenes and have your Bible open to chapter 13, let's look at the first one. Abram traces his steps back to the God of fresh starts and new mercies. It's the first scene in this story. Do you remember, Abram was kicked out of Egypt. He'd failed there. And, and he's not even given a final word at the end of the story in chapter 12. He doesn't even get to speak there. But he leaves from Egypt as a wealthy man, having been given great riches by Pharaoh. When Pharaoh thought, for at least a, a moment, that Sarai was going to be his wife, he gave Abram all these riches. And while he could have now relied on his newfound wealth rather than God's word, that's not what he does. The promised land is still in his heart. He's, his feet, is, he left his heart in San Francisco. Is that the phrase? I guess it is. He left his heart there. And his faith lapse in Egypt wasn't indicative of his true faith in his heart of hearts, as we see this morning. So what does he do? He traces his steps back the God of fresh starts and, and new mercies. Here's Abram's journey popping up on the screen here where he began. Uh, it's a map of the, the promised land east over to Ur and Babylon where Abram was from and born and all the way over on the west to the Mediterranean Sea and the, the promised land, the, kind of the Middle East that we call it today. He bega- begins in Ur over in the east by Babylon there and he makes his initial journey all the way down here to Bethel in the middle of the screen down into Egypt there, down to the southwest of Bethel and Jerusalem, where that would be today, down to Hebron and into Egypt. Now what does he do today in our story? He makes his way back to Bethel, verse 4 says. Back to Bethel. Why? It was the place where he'd made an altar and first called upon the name of the Lord. As we look at those verses, look at verse 4. To the place where he'd made an altar, that's Bethel, at the first And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. What do we see here in this story? In this moment as he travels back, we see a man who's recommitting his life to God. He's on a pilgrimage back to Bethel to recapture his intimacy with God after that horrific uh, failure of faith, retreat of faith that happened in Egypt. He thinks, I'll go back. I'll go back to the place of worship at Bethel. Places do matter. Places do matter. The altar at Bethel I've made, the vow of obedience and trust, Abram thinks, I'll go back. And isn't this how it is with us in some ways? When we sin, when you sin, and, and you sense the grief that you bring to the Holy Spirit, and we sense that distance we have with the Lord, not because He's abandoned us, right? But we've chosen at moments of a false start to to walk from Him. It's the reason I love 
two things, baptism Sundays and Lord's Supper Sundays. Those are returns to Bethel for us, like Abram. When those candidates share their testimony and get dunked under the water, guess what? We too go back to Bethel, like Abram is here. We go back to our, in other words, our first steps of faith, and we rehearse it again. It's the reason we do baptisms here in our building and not maybe down some other place or at a river. Because why? Because most people, it's the place where the most majority amount of people can come and see it themselves. Here. It's not all about just me and Jesus, as we said, even with covenant membership. It's about us together. And Baptism Sunday points that out. The Lord's Supper, we're all together and we rehearse that story and we take it together. We return to Bethel in worship and we rehearse the gospel story. That's why I love Lord's Supper. That's why I love Baptism Sundays. I hope you do too. It's a moment of return, renewal, refreshing. And so too in our personal lives, if you think about it, when we walk away and realize it, what do we do? We repent. We turn, we return to the cross. That's why we're, we, we call ourselves a gospel-centered church. That's why we talk about Jesus on the cross every week. We don't move on from his saving work ever. It covers us once for all, yes, of course. But like Abram, we return to the cross, the cross story when we've sinned, and we get on our knees again. There, we return to Bethel. And he loves for us to do that. He loves when you do it. And it brings him glory. And what does it do? It restores us to that intimacy again with the God of fresh starts. Why? Because he is that. Abraham knew it and we know it. He's the God of fresh starts and new mercies. Aren't you glad of that? Hopefully the longer you've lived, the more glad you are glad of that. Your failures don't define you, that means. God's mercy doesn't dry up. Lamentations, the author said in th- uh, chapter 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't that good news? I mean, that verse that was written thousands of years ago, the well of mercy is infinite in Christ. Infinite. Christ's gifts and riches and favors cannot be exhausted. Abram returned to Bethel. And through repentance and faith, what? We're secure in him. You know, Abram's road of faith, it was long. It's a long, long journey. And so is ours, really, of of great starts out of the block and false starts at times. But it produces perseverance and patience that's otherworldly. And all along the road of your life, we get to see over and again and again the God of, of, of fresh mercies and grace is there. So Abram worships. He worships at the altar and sacrifices burnt offerings. And as the smoke rises up, it's to give us a sign and a symbol that all of life as that scent would have reached the throne room of heaven, all of his life was worship to God. And Moses actually wants us to see that. He's the author. Look at verse 18 real quick at the end of the chapter. 
It says this, So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there, what did he do? He built an altar to the Lord. Lord. So what are the bookends of this story? An altar and worship at the beginning, and at the end, an altar and worship. The story is bookended with sacrificial worship. So as we look at the story, we're meant to see that the stuff in the middle is a fresh conflict for Abram to exercise trust. Let's talk about that for just a second. A fresh conflict in which to exercise trust. Not only were the altars sacrifices there on those altars, they were acts of worship, but now all the story I think Moses wants to see in between those bookends are beginning to to end. The conflict in the middle with Lot as well becomes an exercise of trust for Abram. And therefore, an act of worship too. All of life Moses wants us to see. An opportunity to worship God now for Abram through how he responds to conflict how he responds to, to strife in, in, our, in his life. And then for us too, that means, so too on our journey, our conflicts become an opportunity for us to worship, actually, and how we respond. The book by The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, fantastic book about how to restore conflict or how to reconcile. He says there's a few different ways we can respond to conflict. See if you, any of these ring a bell with you. To some... And actually, that's all of us probably are a mixture of these. To some, conflict is a hazard that threatens to sweep them off their feet and leave them bruised and hurting. To others, it's an obstacle that they should conquer quickly and firmly, regardless of the consequences. But some people have learned that conflict is an opportunity. How about that phrase? To solve common problems in a way that honors God and offers benefits to those involved. That's a summary of the Abram story today. Honors God and he offers benefits to those involved. So will Abram, will he look to escape the hazard of conflict by minimizing or faking peace? Or will he seek to destroy the obstacle in his way? Or the third way, will he see it as an opportunity to trust God and benefit the others involved? Well, what was the conflict? I guess that's important, isn't it? What was the conflict he had? He entered back into the promised land, and as he got there, not only was it occupied by some people, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, which means it was crowded, but also it wasn't big enough to sustain both of them. Sustainability is a real uh, buzzword today, but in this case, it was really true. The story describes that, you know, whether it was a battle over the water supply for the herdsmen or the feed supply, there was strife is the word used, between the herdsmen of these two families. It kind of reminded me this week, some of you will know this movie, some of you won't, reminded me of the old movie, one I love, uh, called Giant. Remember that movie? Uh, Old movie, but it's a well-known epic. It's a Western epic where uh, Rock Hudson and James Dean, Elizabeth Taylor, Taylor, and and both of these men, Bick Benedict and Jet Rink, played by Hudson and Dean, uh, respectively, they had this fierce rivalry, battle. And it's centered on the land, the ranch in the movie, Riata. And there's a range war, you might call it, between these two families and these two sides, a turf war. Why? Because the land was everything. Some of you know that. Some of you know that, that have lived on a piece of land for a long time that's been passed down from family member to family member. You know that. The land matters. 
The promise it contained. The food it contained. And in this movie, the oil it contained for Jet. And so too here in our story, we've got an old Western range war really is what we have. That's what we've got. A fresh conflict to exercise this trust. What would they do? What would Abram do? The land was promised to him and his offspring. Literally, you know what that means? His seed. The land is the seed. The land and the seed are connected. And yet, Lot, at this time, is his only seed, his nephew. He's got no kids. The text says there was great strife. So let's look at the second scene to see what Abram does. Walking by faith, which Abram does, not by sight, produces this this answer, this solution, which was peaceful generosity. How do you respond? How do I respond when something that's been promised to me doesn't come through in the timing I think it should? Or something doesn't happen that I think is promised to me? Some roadblock or conflict gets in the way? Here, Abram, think about him. He's had direct words from God. He's actually seen the Lord himself. God appeared to him, chapter 12 says, and and told him, this land is yours, Abram. But first, I mean, first it was this famine. You bring me out of Ur, God, to here, and now there's this famine. And now it's overcrowded, and we've got this range war. You know what the irony is? The wealth he got in Egypt is what ended up causing his greatest problems. Because now he's got too much stuff for the land. It's like an overcrowded garage. And you have some of those, I know. I do at times. And you would assume that Abram would respond in one of two ways. Either first by trying to get the upper hand. Hey, the promise is mine. No matter the cost, which was from that peacemaker quote. But as Paul says, strife like that is an opportunity for the devil. Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And Abram initiates here. He doesn't take that first option. He initiates here like, remember the peacemakers from the Beatitudes this summer? Blessed are the peacemakers who initiate. They move towards the conflict for peacemaking. He doesn't seek the upper hand. Well, second, you might think he might presumably respond this way. Not just get the upper hand, but he would say, anger at God. Lord, you brought me out of my land to promise me something and now you're taking it away? Not once, but twice? First the famine and now this? What next, Lord? What next, 2020, right? (laughs) That sound like you and I a little bit? That's me sometimes. I know the promises of God, but when I look with my eyes, with sight, it looks as if God has forgotten his promises to me. And my heart tells me one thing, but my eyes tell me another. This doesn't line up with what you've said, God. But Abram here doesn't look with his eyes. He looks with faith. He sees the conflict. He sees it. He knows it. And yet he chooses to act in a way that seemingly actually threatens the promises of God for the sake of peace in his family. And we can respond this way too. So let's look at what he does and why he does it by looking at the love that opens our palms like Abram's. 
I'm going to read 8 through 10 again. Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. We're kinsmen. We're family. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll, I'll go right. If you take the right, I'll go left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord. It's like the Garden of Eden. Like the land of Egypt with all its rivers in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Interesting little footnote there. What is that all about? We'll get to it. This is incredible. As Abram initiates with Lot like a, like a peacemaker, and he gives him here the best choice of the land. Abram could have claimed his rights. This is my rightful land, Lot. God promised it to me. He could have expelled Lot like Abram was kicked out of Egypt. It was familiar to him. It had been done to him. But as a family leader now and a man of faith, he uses the land to make peace. He opens his palms and his resources, and he says, choose your lot, Lot, basically. Look at the land. I want you to see what a different response this is than the scheming plan he had in Egypt where he was shrewd and, and calculating. Here now is deep trust, or rather a deep love that doesn't grasp and hold, but a generous, open-palmed giving. He believed the promises so much that he thought, you know what, I could give the land away time and time again, and God can still make sure it's going to be mine. That's trust. Abram was walking by faith, not by sight, by looking to the unseen promises of God. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. Or as Hebrews said in 11, chapter 11, by faith, there it is, not by sight, he went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, that's not great. Living in tents with his kids, Isaac and Jacob. Heirs with him of the same promise. Why? He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. God was going to do this. God was going to be the architect. He was going to build it by grace through faith. And Christian, you and I, as Abram's spiritual seed, when we live our life by faith, not sight... Faith in the promises of Jesus you have. Faith in the blessing of being united to him by faith so that his death is your death. His life is your life. His resurrection is ours, yours. His inheritance is yours. The cities he's building for us now is yours. When you live that way, with faith and that kind of love, you too will be open-palmed in generous giving, in generous living. You'll be open-palmed with your time, with your money, with your gifts, with your talents, with your reputation. You'll give it away because you trust the word and promises of God so deep in your bones, like Abram. What's God asking you to hold loosely? We asked that a couple weeks ago, too. What's God asking you right now to, to let go and not be close-fisted with? Something to hold loosely that will benefit his kingdom, bless his church, bless your neighbor, 
bless an enemy maybe even? What's he asking you to hold open-palmed? Like Abram, the open-handed believer. But sometimes, if we're honest, remember we're that mixture of faith, good starts and false starts? Sometimes we're a lot like Lot, who was addicted to choice. Let's talk about our addiction to choice for a minute. Lot lived by sight in this moment. And the choice that was set before him, as Abram told him, hey, Lot, choose your lot. Survey the land. You go one way, I'll go the other. And the text lets us know that Lot is is driven by choice, addicted to choice, I'm calling it. It very clearly shows us this intense survey, as it says, and Lot lifted up his eyes, we'll hear these words again, and saw, there it is, by sight, the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. Look at verse 11, so Lot chose, chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And he journeyed east and they separated. Whenever people live in the Bible by sight alone, they're way more prone to being deceived. Think about it. The grass isn't always greener, is it, from what we see? Even Adam saw the fruit. Ah, the fruit looked good. It's my choice. And they ate it. They lived by sight, not faith. Cain, and A- Cain saw that Abel's sacrifice was accepted. I see it. I see what it, what it is. I'm not my brother's keeper. He lived by sight, not by faith. Sons of God in chapter 6, remember that weird story we talked about a while ago? They saw the daughters of men were attractive and they chose and took them. And Genesis 6 tells us corruption increases up to the flood. They live by sight, not by faith. And here Lot sees by sight the good land, he chooses, and he takes it for himself, the text says. What looks best? Which is the most choice portion? The luscious land like the Garden of Eden, the text says. But you know what? It was the biggest mistake of his life. It's ominous. He moves right up next to Sodom, verse 13 says where it says the men weren't just sinners, but your text says, wow, wicked, great sinners. It's a really, excuse me, unusual way to make a strong point there. He lived by sight, not faith. When we look by sight alone, we live by our choices, the immediacy, desires that are immediate right in front of us. What we see, what we decide, it's idolatry of choice is what we see with Lot here. It's a huge problem in the modern world. When we live by choice, we live for choice, we're addicted to choice. We raise it to the highest level of good. I love this quote by a new book that just came out, Rod Dreher. It's called Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. He says the essence of modernity, that's us, that's our culture at least, is to deny that there's anything transcendent, transcendent stories or structures or habits or beliefs to which the individual must submit. It should bind our conduct, or conscience, you might say. To be modern is to be free to choose. What's chosen does not, does not matter. The meaning is in the choice itself. There's no sacred order, no other world, no fixed and permanent truths. There's only the here and now, 
and the internal flame of human desire. Volo ergo sum. It just means I want, therefore I am. Choice. Lot made his choice at the expense of Abram and his, and his extended family, and he wouldn't even know it, but we know it happens to his wife. To live by sight alone is to live with too much grounding in the material world, like this quote says. Now, the material world is real. It's good. God made it. It's for our benefit. But life is more than what you see. That was a theme I used in college ministry. We put it on banners. We put it everywhere. Life is more than what you see. Now, Lot was righteous, the Bible says. But at this point in his life, One commentator said it like this. He was like a man. He'd choose heaven over hell, but not heaven over earth. That's Lot right now. He was addicted to the choice before him when Abram was what? Open-palmed. And he held his choices on earth loosely. Why? It's the third scene in our story. Let's look at the character of God to close. Our scene three is God affirms his all-encompassing now all-encompassing promises to the faithful. God speaks now. Like at the end of chapter 12, Abram had, he didn't get anything to say. God speaks now at the end of this story. As Abram and Lot separate, what does he do? He reaffirms his promises to the man who just gave up his choice and let the land go. These are beautiful words here now in Scripture. Notice the language of these verses as we read them, how it mirrors Lot's actions in 10 and 11. Looked his eyes up, saw, chose. Look to it. Here God directs Abram. God directs Abram to do the same thing because Abram's waiting for God. Look at verse 14 with me again. Then the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I'll give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. He told him, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will, I will give it to you. I love here the all-encompassing language of these verses. That's why we're calling it the all-encompassing promises. He says, Abram, look north. Look south, look east, Uh, look to the west. As far as you can see, I'll give this to you. Not only that, Abram, look down. Look down to the dust, Abram. Your offspring, which means seed, it literally means seed, will be more than the pieces of dust on the ground. What does that mean? That means that Abram could look in almost every direction available to him and be reminded of God's promises. North, south, east, west, down. Almost all, right? Which direction? Up. Not up, Jeff. In the sky. You look up at the sky, it can be pretty empty and void. Just wait. Chapter 15 says, look up, Abram. Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Everywhere Abram could look now. 
everywhere, north, south, east, west, down or up, all-encompassing. Abram could look anywhere in the world and be reminded of God's promises. This is why Abram could be open-palmed, because the love of God was vast and open to him and all-encompassing to him. And here is our connection to Abram and to Christ to transform us into men and women of faith who live open palm too, and by faith and not by sight. You have to look to the one who spread his palms wide on the cross. That's what you have to do. And, and his all-encompassing love, it's our last point today, trusting Jesus is now all-encompassing love. When you do, that will enlarge your soul's capacity. Or I could say to It'll open your palms. Do you see it? Look north. Look south. Look east. Look west. Look up and down and trust the promises of God that Jesus' love is all-encompassing. And what will happen? Your soul will explode in a good way. Your soul will explode. It'll open up. You'll live by faith rather than by sight. I mean, here it is. This is true in the New Testament. Look at these verses. Think all-encompassing, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, all directions will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's another famous verse you probably heard. Paul says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses even knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Do you know when you're filled with the fullness of God, you know what you can do? You can be open-palmed like Abram. How do you live by faith? It's knowing that whether you look north, south, east, west, up or down, the love of Christ is yours because he opened his palms. That's how you grow. You're a child of Abram, a child of God. And the all-encompassing promises he made to Abram, they only get better in Christ. They only get better when we live by faith, not by sight. We can live with open palms and sacrificial love Believing God at his bare word and, and looking, living, excuse me, with the bookends of worship around our entire life. Look at verse 18 again. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we want to live open-palmed. But to do that, we need to see your open palms on the cross and your all-encompassing that love that comes from that act of death and act of resurrection, that neither height nor depth nor any other thing in this earth can separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, let us swim in your love like submersion in water or that we would understand and see wherever we look like Abram had those all-encompassing promises that we too have greater promises that reach to the heights of heaven and to the depths of every created thing. Bless us as a congregation. Bless us in 2020. Let us live open-palmed and by faith, or by faith rather than sight, as we've been challenged this year too with our own trials, things that have been roadblocks to the promises of God. 
Let us respond as Abram did, faithful obedience that glorifies our maker and the giver of life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.